Well, welcome here this morning. If you're new or a guest, my name is Dave. I'm our lead pastor here, and uh, this is an exciting day. It's, uh, it's the start of a new season, of course, in so many ways. Maybe, maybe you're starting a new job, and this is kind of a transition period for you, or, you know, our kids are, are getting back to school, and uh, it's, a, it's kind of this new, fresh thing that happens at the beginning of September. But it's also, it's a new season for us as a church. This is an exciting day. All of the prayer and planning and vision and dreaming is finally kind of coming to that day where we're going to launch a third service starting at 6 p.m. Uh, tonight. And so uh, as Harry invited you, we're going to have a party. You can just join us back again, eat some food with us, hang out and celebrate. Do you know it's also the beginning of a new series that we're launching and we're going to be working through as a church for the next five weeks. And like, I know I don't need to tell you that we're living in a digital age. Or that being in a digital age means that more often than not, we are, that translates into living in a distracted age. Uh, I don't have to make that point because, you know, we, we have access to the world like literally at our fingertips, so much of it, and that we're just pulled in so many directions at the same time. We have so much vying for our attention. And our money, if we're honest. Yeah, I get those Facebook ads that pop up on my Facebook page too. And they're designed specifically to catch my interests. And so, you know, I don't need another guitar pedal. But man, that one is really cool. And then, you know, an hour later, I'm down this trail, this rabbit hole of YouTube videos and consumer temptation. And here I am again. Now, I knew that we needed to do a series uh, looking at tech for a few reasons. But one of them, maybe most importantly, is not just because all of the research that we find is pointing out how our technologies are changing us and the way we interact, but I knew we needed to do this series because, man, I struggle personally with good boundaries around technology use. I really do. It's too easy for my work, the emails, uh, the questions that are coming up on our church's Facebook page, it's easy for those to spill into evenings and weekends for me. And you know, as a parent of young kids, who will grow up after the launch of the iPhone, man, I am concerned for our family, how we interact with the digital landscape. I mean, researchers have pointed out, and this is just a great point, that that kids born after 2007, they will have had to compete with a phone for their parents' attention the whole of their life. My kids have had to at times, and I'm not proud to say that, but that's true. So I don't even need to look at the stats with you to know that the number one biggest reason that parents struggle as parents today and name that is this question, like what are the boundaries for our kids when it comes to screen time and like what they can even be interacting with? But the data all says that the number one thing that parents say, this is why parenting is hard, is technology and social media. That's the number one thing reported today. Andy Crouch says in his excellent book called uh, The TechWise Family, I'd say, get it, I'm going to be drawing on it a ton during this series. He says it like this, we feel helpless to prevent our kids from overexposure far too early to the most violent and intimate facts of life. Yes, I know that many of you feel that sense of helplessness if you're a parent. Crouch goes on, parents feel out of control, hopelessly overmatched by the deluge of devices. 
Now, I've listed a number of other things in your bulletin that are complicating factors, and we're going to touch on them throughout the next few weeks as well. But you need to know this, right at the beginning of this series, that I don't stand here as an, an expert who's got all of this figured out. I am wrestling through this right alongside of you. Uh, we are all in this together, but what I really want is God's wisdom in how I interact. And so let's do this together. And I need you to hear up front as well that I am not coming at this from a reactionary stance, like I'm not ready to throw out my iPhone yet. Well, maybe some days I am, but then good sense prevails, and I think that's really expensive. I probably shouldn't throw it out. Uh, just last week, I had the absolute pleasure of uh, boating up to the far end of Azure Lake with some really good friends, and like way out of cell service. Uh, it was an incredible pleasure to be disconnected and distraction-free for like four days. But we also had this incredible technology that enabled us to be at the end of Azure Lake, like 60 kilometers down two lakes and a river, uh, four hours from Kamloops. We had a satellite phone that could connect to an iPhone so we could text our families and let them know that we were okay and that we had that in case of emergency. So technology is not all bad. That's not what I'm trying to say in this series. Um, my friends and I, we had great conversations, and we had some great conversations about tech as well. See, all of us work um, in different settings, but with very high level of interaction with various technologies. And so we talked about not only some of these challenges, but also that really technology is the result of people using their God-given minds to invent and create things. And some of these things could contribute deeply and have contributed deeply to human flourishing. There's things that are good for human flourishing and good for the good world God made and loves. In fact, the very first page of the Bible, we find out that God creates humanity, we find in his own image. Let me just read that text. Then God said, let us make humanity in our own image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea, and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Uh, one of the key elements of what it means to be made in the image of God is that we are relational beings. We were created to connect with God, with others, with our own selves and the rest of creation. That's what we were made for. But to image God is more than that too. Note that word, so that they may. You find out that our God-given image-bearing is actually a task. It's a job to do. It's a role, and it's a role of co-creativity with God. Theologian Paul Stevens, he says it well. He says, Adam and Eve, like looking back to that story in the Genesis narrative, they work not only for God, but with God in making God's world work. The human task of cultivating and enculturating the earth, meaning to make cultures out of it, includes everything from farming to genetic engineering, from landscape architecture to playing the flute. Surely the development of at least some of these technologies really can be part of the God-given task of creating spaces for human flourishing. But like any good thing, it can become out of place. Like our home, well, it gets more often than we'd like to admit a little bit untidy. Uh, and so sometimes we set the timer and like there's toys all over the place. We set the timer like 10 minutes and we say, okay, kids, all of your toys need to be back in their proper place. And when the timer goes off, if they're not, we'll just give those to kids that um, they will put them away. We'll 
donate them to the Salvation Army. And so that's highly motivating. Um, and they, they put things in the proper place again, and our house is back in order. Now, we've never actually given away toys for that reason. But technology is like that. It has a proper place, and when it's in its proper place, it is good and useful. And when it's out of its proper place, it can cause chaos. So as I chatted with Matt and Dave, watching the sun uh, setting on those uh, beautiful lake, um, we got honest about some of our own struggles, especially as parents. And these guys got it right. They said the, the big question was this, at what point do these good and helpful technologies, these ways of connecting in, through social media, at what point do they move from good to not so good? Like, when do they go from helpful to harmful? And how would you even know? Like, what's the criteria to measure that? That's what this series is seeking to address. What's the proper place of tech in our lives? If we want to live them to the full, the way God intended us to. But now you have to know too, I'm not just going to suggest some good boundaries for tech use. That's not what this is about. This is actually about developing wisdom. Lives that know how to discern what is best from what is good, from what's just good enough. We want the best. We want to form Christ-like character so that we can make great decisions together. So let's just take a moment and pray as we begin this morning. God, you made us for yourself. You made us to join you in your creative endeavor. Help us to live for your glory. Help us to rightly order our lives so that we don't live distracted from real life, but embrace every good thing you have for us to do. Amen. You know, when we begin to more and more and more regularly look at life through the lens of a a black screen, um, we can begin to lose sight of the real world around us. In fact, the nature of the technologies that we often enjoy are designed to keep us looking at them. And a result of that is we we become insulated from even thinking about real life. And that keeps us from from having really healthy relationships. Alan Noble, in his excellent book, Disruptive Witness, probably the best book I read this year, and I would highly recommend it if you want to go out and buy a copy. He puts it well. He says this, innumerable gadgets, websites, channels, streaming services, songs, films, biometric wristbands, they all vie for our attention. Without our attention, their existence is unjustified. They get a reason to live, Right? So each piece of technology we own does what it can to keep us paying attention to it, like an overly eager child tugging at our sleeves, flashing lights, vibrations, bells ringing, little red dots, email alerts, notifications, pop-up windows, commercials, news tickers, browser tabs. Everything is designed to capture our attention. So one of the challenges for us, if we want to be thoughtful about our interaction with our technologies, is to remember these things are designed to keep you looking at them. They're actually designed to be addictive. Now, not only are they designed to be addictive, and we'll talk more about that in future messages, but living in a secular age like we do, and that means it's an age where for many people, um, belief in God just seems like it's not an option anymore or something, and so there's no ultimate meaning. Um, there's no meaning giver in, on the scene. No God who made us and loves us. So in this case, technologies become a welcome distraction because they buffer us from having to actually stop and think about the meaning of our lives and where that meaning might come from. 
But not only that, even those of us who do believe in God, the meaning giver, we can struggle to get real with our real lives. We, we sometimes welcome the distractions because when it gets quiet, when we're left alone with ourselves, those biggest questions become, well, they begin to rise to the surface. Maybe some of those sinking feelings of having to deal with our own failures. And it's in the quiet, undistracted moments, that's when these seem to surface for us. So sometimes we actually seek the distractions as a form of numbing us from the pain of real life. In their song, Over My Head, the band Judah the Lion sings it like this. What's my purpose, huh? What's my future? I don't know. These are the questions I address before I go to sleep. I wish my mind would turn off with the lights on my TV screen. But here, in the dark, everything off, I start to think. It's hard to breathe. I'm in over my head. All these thoughts are an ocean. I'm drowning in. Man, that is a fascinating, refreshingly honest admission. When the TV screen finally goes off, when the distractions are put away, we end up alone with ourselves. And that, that's when we face the real issues of life. That's when we have to get real. Alan Noble, he actually begins that book with his own admission. He says it like this. The person I'm most uncomfortable being alone with is myself. And that's okay because I'm very good at avoiding myself. For example, if I get stuck alone in an elevator, I start to feel that anxiety, the dread of having to examine my life. Even for a minute, I just take out my phone and poof, it's gone. Or if I sense that I need to have a heart-to-heart talk with myself about sin, doubt, or fear, all of a sudden I remember it's my night to do the dishes and you can't do the dishes without listening to a podcast. Self-avoidance is my most advanced skill set. Man, I think we can all relate to some extent with that sense of self-avoidance, even if it's not technologies that we use as a distraction. But a life of wisdom, the life God made us for, that's one that actually looks at life with eyes wide open. So let's dive in and talk a little bit more about that, about being tech-wise, but let's emphasize wise for a few moments. In this series... I mean, we could talk about our ideas about social media and technology use and what would be good ideas. We could. But as the title suggests, we're going to seek out God's wisdom. And that means that all of our conclusions will be linked to what the scriptures teach and to the direction they lead us in. Why? Because God, the author of life, has actually revealed God's self to us. He tells us how life works Best. And now, wisdom, it doesn't just mean um, being clever or quick-witted. There's a lot of clever, quick-witted people who are far from wise. They just don't know how to live life well. Wisdom, you see, is learning about how to think through life with the lens of who God is and how he created us to live. It means paying attention to God and his ways. And in particular, It's seen through the teachings of the Bible, but you know what? The Apostle Paul tells us not only is God revealed through the scriptures, but most perfectly through God's own son, Jesus. In fact, Paul calls Jesus the power of God and the wisdom of God. So gaining God's wisdom will mean paying close attention to the scriptures and to Jesus, God who's come among us. You want to see what wisdom looks like? It's found in a person. His name is Jesus. So the book of Proverbs, let's just 
stop there for a moment, and we're going to talk a little bit about um, this piece of wisdom literature in the Bible. It aims to cultivate a life of being able to discern good from not so good. And here the wise are described as being teachable. Man, they're ready to learn, to think. Um, they store up knowledge and so that they can, they can use it and put it to good use later. The wise are those who listen to instruction and counsel. They accept commands. And they even love it when someone reproofs them. Reproof means someone comes alongside and says, you know what, there's this area of your life, it looks like you're lacking wisdom. Can we talk about that? And the wise person says, yes, thank you. That's what the wise do. Because a wise person walks with those who are already wise, they actually increase in their wisdom. I was talking with our young adults around tables this last Monday night. We were just finishing up our uh, Big Questions, Real Answers series. One of the young adults asked a great question. He said, how do you avoid giving in to peer pressure? This is a first-year university student. What a wise question, number one. But as we talked about it in our groups, one of the things that really came to the forefront, actually, Lisa, you, you pointed this out as well. It was on my top of my list, but Lisa pointed this out. She said, you know, it's really, if you want to keep your commitments, then your core relationships have to be with people who share those commitments. Not all your relationships, but your core relationships need to be with people who share those same Commitments. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 15, 33. He says, bad company corrupts good character. Uh, put another way, your context shapes you. The, the five people you spend the most time with, you'll become just like them. You might think you're not being influenced. You are. You'll become like the five people you spend the most of your time with. The Proverbs tell us the wise spend time with those that they want to be like to gain wisdom. The Proverbs also say that someone who has found wisdom, well, she spreads it and becomes a fountain of life in her community. The wise, they're those who have control over their emotions. They don't let their feelings control their acting. And the Proverbs writer, he says, those who live wisely, they actually bring joy to their parents. Oh, yes. Let's pray for that for our kids. (laughs) They protect themselves by making wise choices, and ultimately they bring healing to others. So the first really big question as we start this series, this is kind of the foundation for us. I want you to ask yourself, do I want to be counted among the wise? Proverbs 2, 1 to 5 offers you and I this invitation. My son or daughter, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turn your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding. Indeed, if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding... And if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. So what about you? What are you searching for? Uh, Pastor Colton and I were talking about this passage, and he said, you know what, Dave, a good question would be, what's your search history? You know, talking about tech. What's your search history? What is it that you are gunning for? If you were to look through your search history, what does it tell you about who you are? Are you committed to learning and finding the knowledge of God? Notice in this text, there's the repetition of the word if. If you call out for insight. This tells us something really key. It says we have a choice to make. You can call out for wisdom. You could call out for insight or not. My hope and my my prayer for us as a community, for each of you, is that we would seek God's wisdom because we need it so desperately today. So our first take-home point is actually just really a commitment. And it's this, will I commit to become 
wise, to seek out God's ways and to live it with courage. Because you see, you could make a great commitment like, yeah, I want to learn a bunch of knowledge. That's great. But living a life that ultimately honors God and honors others around you, it'll take like making hard decisions and maybe some changes. See, having a healthy relationship with the digital landscape, that'll mean setting boundaries in our homes. It'll likely mean making tough choices. We will have to repeat to our kids and to ourselves something like this, but we're not like other families. Sorry. Yeah, we're actually, we're going to do things differently in our house. In my life, I'm going to do things differently. So being committed to wisdom also means making a choice away from other choices. See, the Proverbs and the Psalms, they not only describe the wise, they also describe the fool. And, and fool doesn't just mean kind of silly or like the class clown. Here's what Andy Crouch says. He says, in the Psalms and Proverbs of the Hebrew Bible, the fool is the one who doesn't know God, doesn't understand fellow human beings, and doesn't really know himself. Quotes Proverbs 18.2, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing personal opinion, which sounds a lot like social media, he writes, and it's true. <laughs> a fool can know a lot of things, but a fool doesn't really know how to act in a way that will serve the flourishing of persons, even in the end of his own flourishing. The fool may be well-educated, but the fool does not understand. When he acts, the results are, sooner or later, hilarious and disastrous in equal measure. So this morning, the big focus is this question. Are we committed to gaining the posture of the wise, to move away from folly toward God's wisdom? But we also need to see wisdom is not just about filling our heads with information. You could listen to every sermon, take a ton of notes on this. You could know all this information. But if you didn't say, I'm going to embody these practices week in and week out, um, that will be information. It won't lead to wisdom. Wisdom is embodied knowledge. It's learning how to practice it, make it happen in real life. And see, one of my big concerns, so we're going to have to have practices. We're going to talk about practices. All five weeks, I'm going to give you, like, try this as, like, a thing you're going to do every day or every week, okay? And we're going to talk about some of those right now um, because one of my biggest concerns about our digital world is it can take us away from, distract us, and detach us from real-life interaction and real-life relating. In the ancient world, around the time of Jesus and just after that, um, there was this growing kind of competing vision uh, of reality. Uh, many of the Greek philosophers were putting forward this idea that being human included a division, that your spirit, that's the good part, that's kind of floating up here, that's the real you. But the body and the like, what you do with your body, that one doesn't really matter. That Greek philosophy is called Gnosticism or dualism. And that was gaining sort of momentum in that ancient world. Uh, I'm concerned that in our digital age, we're kind of picking up another kind of dualism again. A dualism where our bodies and what we do with them just is kind of like passive and inactive looking at, and there's this other world going on that's somewhere over here. And there's this division between kind of the real world and the digital Space. And so here's what's important for us to see. In the beginning, again, back to the Genesis text, we see God creating the physical material world and he calls it good. In fact, he calls it very good when he makes humanity. He gives us these material bodies and, and, and even see God so deeply involved that it's like his hands are in the dirt forming and making 
God is pictured as a gardener there. So when you think of God, you think God loves the material world. The material isn't bad and the spiritual good. No. And more than that, after humanity rebels against God, God continues to pursue us. He makes a plan to buy us back for relationship to himself. But this is really key. God doesn't just send a message about himself. In John's gospel, a biography of Jesus, the writer says, the word, and that word, word, logos, means like the meaning of life. It means wisdom. The word, the one, the the, the meaning of life became flesh and dwelt among us. See, God is the message. God the Son shows up in a person bodily, physically present. Um, in theological language, that's called the incarnation. Now, you've had chili con carne, right? Carne is a Latin word for flesh or meat. God in fleshed. God with us is how we just sang it. That's how God loves us. He shows up present in a body. He's here with those he's loving and leading. And here's the interesting thing. That incarnation of Jesus is actually a model and a picture for how followers of Jesus are to interact with the world around us. Jesus, after he died for our sins and was raised to life, conquering sin and evil and death, he says to his first followers and to us today, as the Father sent me, that word as is like in the same way. In the same way as the Father sent me, so I send you. How does the Father send the Son? to be physically present with us, incarnate. Here's the big point. The Christian faith integrates body and soul. We can't ignore one to the exclusion of the other. It means that being fully human means that we're physically present in most of our interactions. It means we need to show up in a body Because more often than we'd like to admit, our engagement with tech actually leads us to be less engaged bodily with the real world. And that's a concern for me. It leaves us more isolated and less connected, even though its promise is the opposite. It becomes too easy to do life online, to do church online, whatever it happens to be. So how do we address that? Just a couple quick points to close. The key kind of overarching thing that we'll keep coming back to over this series is this. We need to make time and space for intentional, undistracted connection with God, others, and even ourselves. That's kind of like the banner under which a lot of these practices are going to fall. Let me give you, um, I mean, in that Judah and the Lion song we looked at, they sing out that when finally alone, without distraction, the big questions of life arise. And so I don't think we can develop a life of wisdom, of becoming the people we're made to be, without kind of embracing and making space for that undistracted self-reflection and prayer. But here's the good, good news. We don't face ourselves by ourselves. Jesus comes to us precisely so that we know why we exist And that's for this ongoing, deep, and beautiful relationship with him. His grace helps us not only to be honest about ourselves, but to know that he loves us in it. See, here's the good news. That God who made us wanted us back in relationship to the point of letting his life break apart so he could win us back 
And he takes his life back up again, and he opens that relationship for us to join him. You see, Jesus frees us then through that. When we, when we take that into ourselves. that's called the gospel. That's the good news. Then Jesus frees us from self-avoidance. Here's how. Because he comes alongside of us and says, yeah, it's true, there's some stuff in your life that needs tweaking. There's actually some rebellion in you. There's even sin in you. We need to deal with that. But I love you. And I'm going to transform you. I'm going to walk through that with you. He opens the way for freedom to relate to him, to others, and even to our own selves without flinching. We don't have to flinch anymore because we know that Jesus loves us. And he loves us to the grave and back. And he's going to make it okay for us to be transformed where he can walk through those things with us. So two key practices for you to implement this week. Number one, in order to have a time of like, undistracted reflection and to invite God into it to meet us in deeply personal ways, I want to suggest taking time for reading the scriptures for prayer without your phone anywhere near you. Maybe it's off. Maybe it's in a different room. Now, I use the Bible app on my phone all the time. I use it uh, in the minutes between meetings, in the waiting room. When I'm having coffee with someone and they ask me a question that's faith-related and I want to open up the Bible, I've got my Bible app. It's sweet. I use it all the time. Good thing. Great thing. Proper place, in my view, its proper place isn't for your regular time with God in prayer and reflection. Why? Here's my few reasons. This is what I do. I want to invite you into it. Uh, One, your phone is designed to distract you, and it will. (laughs) You'll be reading, and you'll say, oh, but I really need to check that um, email or a text comes in. It's right there and you read it and you go, I got to follow up on that right now. And I'm telling you that because that's what happens to me when I try to like spend time with God and I use my phone to do it. Um, if you're reading your Bible on your phone, that's great. Don't let me move you away from that. Keep doing it. I want to say, can you add in a physical text of a Bible as well? When we look at the Bible on a screen that's just this size, mediates our interaction with the text. We don't see what a long, sprawling, beautiful story the Bible is. Uh, when I'm reading my physical Bible, I go, this, this piece of scripture that I'm reading isn't this big. It's really big. And this is connected to that, is connected to that, is connected to that. So one of my concerns is that if, if, if my main uh, connection with the text of scripture is on a very small screen... I'm missing the bigger picture. It'll be very easy for me to take things out of context. And I don't want to do that. I want to read the whole thing for all its beauty and wonder. And wow, that is a confusing part. And all of that together. So for me, I find I relate to God best when I interact with a physical Bible in a way that I can't with my Bible app. See, I take notes right in the text. Um, I write prayers in the margin. I write question marks when I don't really know what it quite means. I can't do that on my Bible app, or maybe you could, but I can't. I also found that having a physical journal where I can just interact with that text in prayer, uh, write down things that are standing out to me, what I'm hearing God speak to me through the scripture. I mean, that's a photo I just took. It was September 5th up in the top left corner of my journal. That's just my interacting with John 21 from that morning. And that's what I do. That's how I find... um, I can interact best and and listen for God's voice in an undistracted way. So can I suggest that you put a physical Bible, like find it, I know it's there somewhere, uh, dust it off, 
I know you've been reading your Bible apps lots, and that's great, but find your Bible, put it on like your breakfast table. Put it in your backpack that goes to work with you and take it out and read it. Uh, Maybe it's just 20 minutes a day. Phone off in another room, disconnected from that so you can really connect with God. I think a small change in habit like that can actually have a really significant impact on your life. And I just want to invite you to try it. Maybe just for five weeks while we do this sermon series. Just see what happens. You know, as I was reading the end of John's gospel this week, and in my prayer time, I just noticed again this beautiful description of how Jesus cares for his followers. Jesus starts a fire by the lake, and he starts cooking a meal for his disciples bread and fish over the coals. Here's the risen and reigning Lord of the whole universe, and he's waiting on tables, making fish over a fire for his disciples. He invites them to come and sit down for a meal. All through the scriptures, we find out that the table is a place where God loves to show up. Because the table is more than just a place of feeding our bodies. It feeds our need for social interaction, for belonging. And more than that, it hints at the great future that God has promised us, that one day we will sit down at, the, at, the, at this great wedding feast where Jesus and his church will finally be united perfectly. And so here's one major embodied practice. And we're going to come back to it over this series, but are you ready for it? This is really big news. You ready? Eat together. Eat together as a family, with your housemates if you are a university student, with your neighbors whenever you can, eat together. I know it sounds ridiculously simple, but it's a super significant thing to do. As a family, we have our dinner together almost every night. Every night that we can, we sometimes even light a candle just to mark out that something special is happening because something special is happening. It is a countercultural action to simply be present in an undistracted way with each other. This is a time to put away all devices, phones, TVs, out of sight. I mean, we don't even have a TV like in our living space. There's one downstairs somewhere. It gets one hour of video game use a week. That's it. But on those days when you can, because maybe you can't, maybe you're a busy family and the kids have sports over that time, but whenever you can, can I suggest that you eat together? That simple practice of table time is a countercultural act that brings us back to connection and grounding, and it's like that one-hour space that you can be just tech-free in your family. Can I invite you into that? This morning, we talked about a commitment to be wise and two practices that will feed that wisdom making space for quiet reflection with God and times of connecting over a meal. So by God's grace, may he form us into a people who bring him glory as we pay attention to what he's saying to us and then embody it in like real interactions with other people. Let's pray. God, we are looking to you to be our guide, our lighthouse, the one that we say, man, we're so glad that you reveal wisdom to us and lead us, Jesus. We need you. We're looking to you to give us direction for how best to live in your ways, the ways of wisdom. And we thank you, Jesus, that you make it possible through your death and resurrection that we can have new life in you and walk in your strength today. In Christ's name we pray, amen.